Before we start today, I would like to pay tribute to Travis Dix, who passed away last Sunday uh, playing basketball. Um, Travis was a special friend of uh, this podcast. He was our uh, very first guest, and uh, we were privileged and honoured to have him back again about a month ago. Um, I guess that um, in, to be successful in business or in life, uh, you need to be honest, you need to be hardworking, and I think it also helps to be a little bit upbeat. And I think those are three qualities that uh, Travis had by the truckload and uh, all the more reason why um, him being uh, you know, taken from us at the age of 42 is uh, um, that, that, that much the worse. Um, our sympathies to his loved ones. Um, I only knew Travis professionally, but I know there are a lot of people in our community who, who knew him outside of ours uh, and as a friend. And I know that um, uh, many of you are, uh, are hurting and uh, I would like to say that uh, you have my deepest sympathies. Um, the show goes on, but Travis, uh, we will never forget you, mate. G'day and welcome to Lunch Money. We are the online and social media home for special situations, workouts and capital raising professionals. Uh, my name is Nick Samios. I am the fund manager uh, and director here at Hermes Capital and uh, today I am your host. So once again, welcome. Uh, do remember to share, like or subscribe, uh, whether or not you're watching us on uh, YouTube uh, or listening to us uh, on Apple uh, on your podcast there. Give us a little like and uh, maybe give us a five-star rating just uh, to, to help us uh, share, the, share the, uh, the, good, the good messages that we, um, that we give here every week. I'm calling it half time in, the, in COVID-19. Um, and usually when you've got a, a game of uh, AFL or rugby, whatever, whatever your poison is, uh, halftime is the time for the halftime analysis. And uh, what's the score? Um, we've got JobKeeper, SME guarantees, bank loan deferrals. Who's dropped the ball? Uh, what are the coaches telling the teams at halftime? Uh, what needs to be changed up uh, in the second half if we're going to take home the trophy? Uh, I've got two fabulous guests uh, this week to, uh, to help us uh, uh, go over the analysis of what's going on and what to look for in the future. And we're starting off with Scott Langdon, uh, partner at Cordamentha. G'day, Scott. How are you going? G'day, Nick. Yeah, good. Uh, really well, mate. Great to be here, pal. Fantastic. Now, you are one busy man. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, you, um, yeah, what, tell us, uh, tell us what, what it is that is keeping you so busy this past week or so. Yeah, busy, but um, having having a lot of fun at the same time. Uh, what's been, what's been my week? Um, we uh, concluded uh, the sale uh, and recapitalisation process on the CFOLI administration. Our Sydney practice, uh, our Sydney restructuring practice, got appointed as voluntary administrators a couple of weeks ago to the CFOLI group. Uh, it's got around uh, 40, 50 um, networks around the, the retail network around the country. We split off into two teams. Uh, Raul Goyle uh, ran the operational restructuring side and I ran the sale of business side. Um, interestingly, um, we, we talk about previously and you've talked about it plenty on these calls is around how we use um, administration or have to uh, rehabilitate companies and, and we've tried to use it to uh, restructure um, restructure the C-Folly network. So through the operational side of things, we've cut back the stores by about 20. We've made about 100 people redundant um, 
and we've right-sized the organisation both from a, a retail footprint, a head office footprint and um, the supplier footprint. And um, we've managed to present that business to market. And uh, can I tell you, Nick, there is, there was, it's overwhelming how many people put their hand up to look at the business. And, and one of the things that might come through today is that there's still plenty of cash out there. There's still plenty of interest. People are still passionate about business and looking for opportunities. But um, we completed a, a sale process late last week. This week, we've just been um, finalising a few of the logistics and we're going to put the uh, the sale uh, proposition to creditors on uh, on Monday at our second meeting of creditors, which will be a tremendous result for the employees. A couple of hundred people maintain their jobs, maintain the retail footprint, clean the balance sheet up, and uh, they've got a, you know, a framework to really attack into the future, albeit in a, a really, really tough retail and um, more broadly business environment. I guess what's uh, really interesting is that um, that you've, you've, there is a role for the voluntary administration uh, process right now. I mean, obviously, uh, all of your colleagues, and I'm sure that you're finding it too, there's not a lot of administrations, and the statistics show it. I was going to show a graph. Uh, obviously, the, the voluntary administrations are way down, but regardless of all of the government assistance and all of the all of the uh, all of the the things that that they've implemented, the bank deferrals, etc., there is still a role for voluntary administration. Absolutely, and um, uh, it would be interesting to hear from directors of companies that have put their businesses into voluntary administrations and the rationale for it. But um, ultimately, uh, we were at a, in retail, and in particular, the industry that Seafolly are in. They're at the lowest level of sales uh, in the curve. Retail's tough, and you know we, we need to ramp up again for the, the summer period. And and the uh, the directors considered that it was a big cash hole ahead of them, and um, they needed to restructure and. And uh, they put it through a voluntary administration process. As I said, Raul, um, right-sized the business, got it match fit to then attack going forward. But by right-sizing it um, and getting the practice looking very attractive and profitable, um, we got a lot of interest interest from parties wanting to buy the business. And as I said, it was seriously overwhelming to see that the high quality too, the quality of people interested in buying the business was really, really pleasing. And, and as I said, it's now on a footing where it can uh, hopefully it can get through the rest of the COVID period. Hopefully for society we're through it shortly and then hit the summer period and um, and uh, in the high sales for uh, the seafoli industry or business. And uh, obviously you've also been uh, involved in Virgin. So, uh, I mean, they're two massive matters. Do you, um, what, what what does that mean for you personally? Yeah, well, hopefully we get to the creditors meeting on Monday on seafoli get the creditors to um, hopefully take our recommendation, vote up the docker. And pass it back to the um, the directors, so that will then um, that will that will then come to its natural conclusion over the next few weeks. And on the Virgin uh, role, we've been uh, we were appointed by Bank Capital about four or five months ago to help them with the uh, the financial due diligence and the strategy behind um, the, the uh, acquisition approach. Uh, as would be well known to everybody who listens to your show, Bank Capital were the successful bidder through the the um, Deloitte run. Virgin sale process, and um, at the moment we're now in an implementation phase, similar to what we were doing with um with Seafolly in terms of uh, we're in administration, we're going to come out of it shortly. What do we do to right size the business and and, and get the, the structure in place to give Virgin you know, the best possible chance to, to not only survive but thrive into the future? And hopefully, when the uh, the uh, the airline industry turns and and we remove from this COVID world. Uh, can, can you get me special membership into the Chairman's Lounge when it reopens again, Scott? Uh, you, you can get the one after me. Yeah, no worries. Okay, listen, we'll put, just put you back in the waiting room there and we'll introduce our next guest, David Gandolfo. Uh, how are you going, David? 
Well, thanks, Nick. How are you going? Fantastic. Great. Uh, thank you very much for coming back again. David is um, uh, the president of the Commercial Asset Finance Brokers Association of Australia. Um, you're also on the board of COSBOA. That's that's yep. correct, isn't it? And uh, and uh, he has a day job as well uh, as a finance broker um, uh, with Quantum. So, uh, look, I guess what we're going to talk about a little bit later on, we'll touch upon um, all of those, uh, those, those other positions that you hold. But what's it like in, in broker land at the moment? Oh, it's very difficult at the moment. It's, uh, and, and it's just um, uh, picking up on one of uh, Scott's points there. The, um, uh, there's plenty of money around and there's plenty of, of uh, businesses that are viable and that are going quite well and, uh, and that are trading actually quite normally and have a normal requirement for capital uh, and, uh, and are wanting to take advantage of low interest rates and, uh, and opportunities that are out there. But the lending environment is very, very different and it's very constrained and there's a lot of uh, constraint on lending policy and streamlined lending products. So it's a lot harder. So what, what's it like in broker land at the moment? It's it's a lot harder to get a deal done. So, you know, what have I been doing over the last week? Uh, not as much as I would normally do. Uh, in terms of output, uh, it takes a lot longer to get something done. There's a lot more process. There's um, certainly a lot more um, information that's required and uh, a lot of uh, a lot more convincing the lenders to, uh, to part with their money. So up until the end of June, we were going flat chat, uh, with people wanting to take advantage of the instant asset write-off, and that was like a real logjam of, of business that was going through then. Um, we've always said, you know, at an industry level, that um, uh, fiscal policy, you know, government regular uh, tax incentives are far more uh, important and um, and moderate behaviour much more than lower interest rates and monetary policy. So, uh, and that, and this is proof. You, know, you you provide people with a tax incentive, they will go out and use it. Um, low interest rates, they kind of just, you know, there's no urgency to do anything about. So um, we were flat out until the end of June, but, of course, all that has done is is brought forward business that would otherwise have happened probably July, August, September. So, um, and business is a lot quieter now. And then on the, uh, the CAFPA front, uh, industry level, uh, dealing with some of those issues, I mean, you know, there are loan. I know we're going to talk about them, but there are loan deferrals uh, programs out there. Some of them are going quite well. Um, some lenders won't lend to you if you're in a deferral. It's it's actually pretty prudent to mm. put your cash to one side and and uh, minimise your outgoings when we're in a, an environment the way that we are. Um, and uh, there's a there's one or two lenders there who, once you're in deferral, won't let you out of it, uh, which is problematic for companies that want to get out of it so um and then there's the COVID loans there's been some change there so we, we're dealing with a number of issues at an industry level uh apart from the regulatory stuff that's going on so and engaging with both sides of politics which is also quite interesting so yeah lots, lots of stuff going on there. and what what sectors uh anything particular transport mining services retail what um well, well not not so much retail but uh, uh transport logistics um Building construction, earth moving, uh, uh, those sorts of industries, food uh, services, um, some retail. But of course, you know, it's obviously it's fairly obvious when you walk down the high street which retail businesses aren't doing so well, um, yeah. and even the cafes that are pumping out takeaway coffees aren't uh, doing the sorts of volumes of business that they would normally do, and they've still got the overheads that they would normally have. Uh, so they're suffering. Uh, but there, there are, you know, we are the businesses that we're busy with. Um, are the larger ticket sort of uh, items and uh, uh, plant equipment hire, um, 
building, anything related to those types of industries um, seem to be almost unaffected. And uh, I think it's fair to, to describe you as indomitable. Uh, I mean, you are very chipper uh, in spite of the fact that uh, you're having to re-prosecute this, uh, this lockdown uh, situation. Oh, well, well you're calling this the halftime. This week we're halftime or halfway through the Victorian uh, you know, stage, whatever it is, lockdown, stage three, uh, which is almost like the stage four. And, uh, uh, you know, we're halfway through the six weeks. I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be six weeks with the numbers the way that they're going at the moment. So uh, um, and so in Australia at the moment, we've almost got a two-speed economy. We've got Victoria still in lockdown and the rest of the country trying to get on with it. But Victoria, the, the country won't get on with it whilst one of the major states uh, is still basically not uh, functioning normally. Yeah. Uh, so it's, we're in a really dire situation at the moment until we get out of it. We'll bring um, Scott Langdon back, and uh, we'll we'll start doing uh, we'll start doing some of the analysis. So I guess I will start with you, David. Um, I mean, from the let's let's start with the banks. Um, you know, if, do you think they've so far they've handled this well? I, I know that, for example, with the uh, the the SME guarantee, uh, with mm. where. Uh, the government was guaranteeing half of the two hundred and fifty thousand. There was a, there was a very low take up of that. Did you do any of those deals? Oh no, we didn't. We we uh, are primarily our business is primarily in asset finance, but uh, yeah. uh, capital represents commercial finance brokers who who still write those loans. Um, there was reasonable inquiry for those loans, but right. I'll give you a couple of quick stats. There's roughly nine hundred thousand businesses that are on JobKeeper, and I think yeah. there's a couple of hundred thousand people who have accessed the superannuation. But there's only about sixteen or seventeen thousand of those loans that have um, been created, and of those, just over half are from one lender, one bank. Is that uh, right? 40, that is right. And there's wow. forty-two banks um, that have got access to the scheme. Uh, so you've got to say the other forty-one aren't doing a great job with it. Uh, there's also wow. a handful of second-tier lenders who are at a higher interest rate, um, who are promoting those loans as well. They are writing them. Um, yeah. So uh, the, 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 there's a couple of different problems there. Um, of the banks that aren't writing them, there are um, that initially uh, some of them literally just just didn't have the processes or the uh, the ability to write those loans uh, efficiently. Uh, but they're also still applying. What what they have done is they've they've taken into account the the government guarantee in terms of the risk pricing, but not in terms of the risk credit. Um, right. So, because there are initially up until this week or the, the government's announcement, um, the two hundred fifty thousand dollars loans had to be unsecured. Uh, they were over a three year term. The first six months uh, there was a loan deferral. So the remaining thirty months, um, if you drew down the whole two hundred fifty thousand dollars, your payments were around nine thousand dollars. And that, mathematically, uh, they actually weren't that attractive. Those loans, so mm -hmm. to borrower or to lenders, um, now that they're out to five years. Uh, you don't have to have the loan deferral. You can take that two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and your payments are about forty six hundred dollars. It makes it a lot simpler, but and, and they can be secured not by property, but by an all pap or some other uh, form of security. So, not, um, not by property. A, is that that specifically not by no, property? Not by, okay. no, and I, I, I suspect, and I don't know, but I suspect that the government doesn't want to be guaranteeing loans where people's houses are being foreclosed on. Yeah, uh, sure. This wouldn't be a good look. So. Uh, that's uh, so. There is some scope there for more of those loans, but um, you know we got some initial inquiry last week when that was uh, announced, but uh, that's kind of died off as well. 
I think, but there's also been a corresponding increase in standard overdrafts and regular banking products uh, going up. So people are still getting bank loans, but not these government loans, not government bank loans. And, and Scott, um, how, what, uh, how have you found the banks in, in the last, you know, in the last couple of months? I mean, is, are they changing their stances at all? Are they still hands off, you know, with their problem loans? I mean, are they still just waiting, kicking the can down the road? I, mean, <clears throat> I think that's um. One of, one of my observations, maybe I'll just jump out off, off the back of one of David's comments, is that COVID has just been such a disruptor for business generally. We've got to remember it's been a massive disruptor for the banks as well. You've mm-hmm. got, um, you know, in Melbourne in particular, we're still in shutdown and, you know, it's just a gut-wrenching situation that we see in, in Victoria at the moment. But the head office of NAB and ANZ are there and there's nobody in the office or predominantly no one in the office. So they're working remotely and, and organisations that have 40 or 50,000 people aren't established to have everyone working remotely. And uh, I think they've done broadly on execution, trying to help customers quite well. I I think that the logistical nightmare that would have been having everybody working from home, which they weren't established to do, I think was probably what they would like to have been able to execute versus what they've been able to execute. I think is they've done a reasonably uh, reasonably good job, especially given the quantum and the seismic shift to their business operation. Um, So I think there's been good intent there to be able to, Try and deliver for their customers, and and as David said, the overdrafts are there. Easy wins for customers. I think the banks have broadly done what they can to, to work with customers as a general rule. I got into a bit of a, a bit of a Twitter spat with someone. Uh, I don't know why I do these things, but uh, after the second glass of wine, you know, I don't know if you guys do know what it's like, but um, someone was 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 bank, you know, saying what. Terrible, terrible things the banks were, and I—I I, I tell you what it was. Actually, it was—it was—it was Emma Alberici made a comment about um, that the banks, the Royal Commission, and the banks weren't basically getting punished enough. Was was more or less, I think, the thrust of the the thrust of it. And I made the comment. Well, the trouble is, you know, we don't, you know, back off the banks because at the moment they're scared of um, of being clobbered but they're kind of damned if they do the right thing damned if they do the wrong thing and what we what my argument is we don't want the banks being scared to do deals do you, do you think scott that they are still you know the royal commission is still hovering in the back of their minds and is that stopping them from being a bit more productive uh, i think there's no doubt that there's still a shadow of the royal that 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 that, that lends very deep over the banks there's no doubt that they have to think about what's the social um, output of the decisions they make. It's not just a financial decision, a, a, a customer decision or a shareholder decision. There's what does society think? And, and the three of us could look at a situation and all have very different perspectives on it, as we're probably going to have a few different perspectives on on how the government's dealt with COVID broadly. Um, yeah. So it's a very, very challenging. And it's, there's very much a, a threading the needle type role that they need to play when they have to live up to society's cha- uh, expectations because society is so complex and diverse. So there's no doubt that there is a shadow that that is part of their decision making that's continuing. But I do think that to go back to my point, I think they have responded very well. And the positive is that they're going to become a lot more dynamic. Every business is going to become more dynamic as a consequence of COVID. The speed of technology they've had to adapt. So uh, some of the challenges that they would have found over the past you know six months with COVID, but maybe over the last four years of dealing with banks, that hopefully when we come out of COVID, we've got to a massive step forward in the way technology works, decision-making works. And uh, that's the potential long-term benefit of, of where the banks could sit and could become a really like a step change in how much they facilitate and encourage business into the future. 
Well, we're seeing, I saw something in the paper the other day about CBA making massive investments in, in fintech and all that sort of stuff. What, what, what do you think, David? The, oh, this, the, I could go in about four different directions here. Um, with, uh, in response to the Royal Commission, uh, Payne, in his, when he summed up and in his recommendations, and, and business lending was in round three, and he really found no failure in business lending. So, uh, and, and his recommendation at the end of it was that there should be no extension of uh, national consumer credit protection into the small business space or small or medium-sized business space. So that's the first thing. So he never made a recommendation that there should be any change to the way that business lending is actually done. There is, however, the Banking Code of Practice, which was extended um, and uh, uh, through the Banks Association, and it's actually quite workable, uh, but it's the way in which it's interpreted. So um, unfortunately what happens is that there's interpretations within, within banks and within their compliance areas uh, and uh, and what they sort of and they, and they cover their backsides a little bit, um, yeah. and then they move the goalposts a little bit further, and then that becomes that folklore becomes policy, and it sort of becomes law. And it's not actually law, but it just becomes the practice. Now, what um, and they also have um, there's been a practice over the last few years of commoditizing credit and simplifying credit, which is good in one way, um, but it also doesn't allow for um, proper analysis of each individual situation. So that's made it harder. It all, then gives rise to those second-tier lenders and those finance company-type lenders that actually will just look at a, a situation and say, okay, it doesn't quite fit the mould. It doesn't tick uh, 20 out of 20 boxes, but it sort of ticks 17. Um, we'll go with it on this basis or we'll mitigate the risk in this way. And, and this is what the market is really crying out for at the moment. And it's not a matter of whether or not they're they're the cheapest lender in town. If the cheapest lender in town won't assist you, then they're not an option. If, the, yeah. if, if you've got to pay a little bit more, what's the cost of not getting the loan or the funding at all? You've got to measure it against that. So um, there's that's a lot like of change. My pitch. So, yeah, well, well that's right. But, the, the, uh, but it's, it's a fact. I mean, if, if uh, in terms of rate sensitivity and, and what you actually, the output or the outcome that you actually need, um, you've just got to measure the cost against. Uh, uh, the benefit. And well, I guess when you talk about that if it continues going down this harm, uh, modern uh, like everything being in harmony, the banks in 10 years, all they'll do is provide credit cards and home loans. And us as society can't have that as an output. We need them to be a dynamic part of society, putting money in and having competitive tension. And, and going back to the Royal Commission and the impact that's had, one of the things that I would really encourage boards of the bank, banks to think about is we still need entrepreneurial spirit in there. We need people who are going to change things. We need people who are going to challenge the status quo and, and have a bias to action in the banks because the status quo can't remain. And hopefully COVID, to my earlier point, might actually have a positive impact to say we need to actually modernise the way we do it. We need to, to be dynamic because if we just have cookie cutter outputs, yeah, in 10 years, the banks will only be credit card providers and home loans. And that's not good for society. No, you're right, but they've also got an obligation. I mean, you know, the, the tr at the moment, Treasury's doing everything it possibly can to stimulate the economy and to put money into the economy. Now, uh, you know, I have a good relationship with Anna Bly, the Bankers Association. I've got to say, I think she's doing a fantastic job. Um, and through my CAFPA role, I'm probably in a unique position where I, I'm day-to-day -day dealing with people at operational level, but I'm also talking to people at board level of banks. And, um, and there seems to be this massive disconnect. They've got all the intentions of, in the world of... of providing all those outputs, but somewhere operationally within some of the, not all, um, but some of the banks, it just seems to happen that we get into this quagmire of policy and it well, just strangles output. 
Well, there's that classic one, David. Just just briefly outline. CAFPA went to the banks. No, well, CAFPA went to the government and tried to get June 30 extended because there was such a backlog of deals. Yeah, we didn't like the traditional calendar. Tell tell us that story. Well, we could see, we could foresee early in June that uh, the banks were going to have a problem processing all of those uh, settlements prior to June 30, which were dependent on um, uh, instant asset rights that were critical for June 30 settlement. You know, if you're you're, uh, financing a 150... $150,000 $150,000 asset, uh, there's a $150,000 tax deduction there available to you. There's you know roughly $45,000 in tax that you're not going to pay. Now, if that trips into the 1st or 2nd of July, then there's something that you've missed out on. So what we proposed to Treasury was that perhaps there could be a grace period of, say, up to 14 days, as long as the documentation was all signed, sealed and lodged prior to June 30, that they would allow the tax deduction up to that, say, 14-day period, grace period. Um, now, they came back to us and said, look, the banks have got it all under control um, and um, uh, and no, we don't need to do that. And it was logistically difficult. It had to go through the parliament. couldn't be done. Um, but certainly that was something that we tried to do. the banks actually say, no, we don't have a problem? Uh, they're in this, one of their industry bodies, not the Bankers Association. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Right, right, right. We'll just, um, we'll just change focus a little bit, Scott. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the changes to the insolvency laws. Um, and obviously there was uh, the suspension of the stat demand, statutory demand. So whereas before... Um, you know, if someone hadn't paid a trading debt, for example, one business hadn't paid uh, for supplies to another business, um, you could issue a statutory demand notice. They had 21 days to pay, otherwise they were potentially facing liquidation. That was extended six months. Do, is that Does that work, do you think? Has that been a, a good thing? I think it has broadly worked. Um, a lot of these, uh, all of these changes need to be taken in the context of an 80-20 rule. I, I think that 20% of the time that Directors have probably done the wrong thing, taken advantage of people who haven't paid them and and, uh, taken strong liberties. But uh, a lot of people that I deal with are in the 80% of the camp that's taken a little bit of the stress out because what it does more than anything is that people make make the best decisions when they're informed and have clarity of thought. And one of the, as a a restructuring expert, and we we help people is working through their thought processes and and what is the best next step in in a difficult environment. If you've got a tsunami of, of, of demands coming in and you're copying it from everywhere and it's hard to make really informed and smart next steps. And given that we've got COVID, the changed environment, I think it broadly has done really well because it's taken an element of stress out and good people have done the right thing and not taken liberties of their counterparties. But absolutely, okay. I think the three of us have all got examples where probably people have done the wrong thing. I've got here a recommendation by the Turnaround Management Association um, where this was in yesterday's uh, financial review, uh, where the TMA was calling on the federal government to amend the unfair preference laws to exempt payments made by non-viable businesses to creditors during the COVID-19 period from any statutory clawback from a liquidator. Um, so what? Um, just to sort of make that into plain language, I mean, the idea is that if if a company fails, that all of the uns- all of the suppliers to that business Maybe if they get ten cents in the dollar, they're all treated equally, albeit pro rata. But if it's ten cents in the dollar, it's ten cents in the dollar. But hey, uh, if, if one of the suppliers knew that the company was teetering on the edge and they got all of the money due to them, maybe they went over and stood over their business and said, "Listen, 
give us all our money. Well, uh, someone like Scott can come along and say, no, you got that money unfairly. That was an unfair preference because you had knowledge other people didn't have. So they want to sort of put a bit of a hold on that. I mean, is that a, I've heard mixed mixed opinions on that. What, what do you think, Scott? I don't really have a strong view either way on it uh, would be my initial my initial reaction. But um, uh, but what I would say at a more broader broader level is the, the type of thinking that that, that 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 it brings is is more our complex our laws. As Nick, you've done an unbelievable job of simplifying something that's very complex. Is that our insolvency and restructuring laws are so complex, and every time we do a change, when we put another layer of complexity on and complexity on, and now we've got safe harbour on top of it. Um, I am a massive advocate of simplifying. You know. Why don't, instead of putting more regulation on, why don't we take it off and simplify the situation? And that would be a massive change towards more positive, um, more positive reconstructions and simplifying our approach. So by saying that there are no clawbacks, um, I think on one level it's a simplification, and but um, I, I do think there's an element of in financial distress. Getting everybody uh, treated equally is a really important threshold, and. It's a, it's, a, it's a non-negotiable. So removing it so that some people with additional leverage on some on, on a counterparty or additional knowledge, um, that feels a little bit, uh, I'm not sure that feels right to me. I think there's an element of, um, uh, through voluntary administration, through reconstruction, equality is, a, is, a, is a just a non-negotiable. So my gut feel would say that I, I probably wouldn't be overly amenable to it. But anything to simplify our laws, anything to simplify the structures we win, uh, we operate in can only be a good thing. Any, I, I appreciate, David. This isn't necessarily your ballywick, but does that cross your cross your desk at all? Any of this stuff? No, none of my clients are Scott's clients. Yeah. <laughs> and let's keep that for a long time, David. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, look. Um, imagine. Uh, let, let, let's sort of get into uh, wishful territory. I mean, is there one thing that that you would like either the banks or the government to do? Um, to make things better uh, moving forward? Probably the, the, the highest watermark for me and the most critical thing to see in the second uh, second half is how we wean off JobKeeper. Um, I think it's broadly done. Once you give, it's very hard to take. And, um, and by pulling the rug very quickly, which they're not going to do now, um, would have caused enormous stress and chaos um, in business. And just how the business weans itself, what the government weans the society off JobKeeper is absolutely critical. If they execute that well, we'll have a soft landing. If we execute badly, and um, and there will be a very hard landing. And I think it also ties into a unification of government where it doesn't matter which side of politics you're on. I think the person who's running the, the local pizza restaurant or the coffee shop, they want clarity of communication. They want clarity as to what they need to do to best position themselves. If we have, and I think we've seen it play out in the last week, both sides of politics now sort of seeing a little bit of finger pointing, that's not going to give confidence to SME businesses to come through the other side. Clarity of leadership from government um, is absolutely critical through this next period. And just how we wean off JobKeeper are the two, um, two things I'm, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I do, want, I do worry that JobKeeper maybe gives an unfair advantage to businesses that should otherwise be outcompeted. But uh, I, I, interesting, David, that uh, I was talking to a broker on Monday and he said that uh, a financier who specialises in motor vehicles uh, had said, if you're on JobKeeper, um, declined, automatically declined. Yeah, um, I read that in comments, Nick. I, I haven't struck that. Um, certainly, uh, and I hope that's not the case, 
Mm. Uh, and I, I hope that perhaps that someone has got the policy wrong or has misinterpreted it. Uh, I think they I may have said it, but... Um... Yeah, I, I hope that it, certainly that's not the case because there's there's so many businesses on JobKeeper that if you're not going to lend to to a business that that is utilising JobKeeper, then you might as well just pack up and go home. Uh, but there, uh, go back to one of my earlier points. Um, there are still banks that are not lending to businesses that have taken up the uh, the payment deferral scheme, mm. uh, and um, you know that to me that just is illogical. The uh, right at the very go back to the beginning of this. Uh, when we didn't know quite how bad this was all going to be, we thought we were heading into Armageddon and falling off a cliff. Um, you know, there was talk of, um, you know, two th a third of the Australian population contracting uh, coronavirus. Um, there were, you know, awful, horrible statistics coming out of Italy and, and Spain at the time, and, and we were going to be in that situation very, very quickly, and obviously that didn't happen. But, you know, and there was no JobKeeper at the time either. So, you know, people were hanging on to whatever was available. Um, and it was only natural to say, okay, and they were encouraged, by the way, by the banks and the yeah. Bankers Association and Treasury to go out and, and take these loan deferrals. Mm -hmm. So once you take them, they weren't then told that, hang on, if you do that, we're going to hold off on um, other approvals that you've got or other lines of credit, and we're not going to uh, extend any other credit to you if you need something else. So um, now that there are a couple of standout lenders who have um, not adopted that policy, but at the other end of the scale, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's, there's you know, one major bank who uh, is having, you don't seem to be able to get out of uh, your loan deferral, and that stops other lenders um, from lending to you. So that's, it, it's really quite problematic. So what would be your, your one wish? If you, you get one wish from either government or the banks, what, would you, what do they need to change up for the second well, half? They're about to run onto the, run onto the paddock. What are you, you going to yell at them? Okay, I'm not a fan of regulation, as Scott has said. You know, we've already got too much regulation, so I don't want the government to be telling the regulating or, or making laws that the banks have to adhere to. But uh, certainly, encouraging uh, the government should be understanding these issues and encouraging the banks. And and uh, uh, and I, I, you know, I just want a, I want a practical assessment from banks as to how these businesses are actually running. There's, you know, like we all know how businesses operate and what works within a business and and the way in which we run our own businesses. But um, some of that practical thinking doesn't seem to apply or, or come into the, uh, the thinking of the collective uh, when, uh, when banks make aggregate policies that apply across the board to everybody. I think there just needs to be some um, uh, a little more bespoke thinking and lending uh, practice and less um, you know, blanket policy, which applies to everybody and, and discriminates against a lot of people. A bit of advice I'd, I'd give to everybody at the moment. Um, it's best decisions are made with clarity of thought find ways of getting rid of stress, Under, control the controllables, what you can't control, run to the fire, understand what you can't control, put plans in place and uh, make informed decisions. Um, trying to remove all the stress that you can to make smart, informed decisions is critical. Don't, I'd be encouraging anybody who's, who's, in, in, who's facing financial challenges to make knee-jerk reactions. Take your time and it's very much a ready, aim, fire approach and seek the advice of, of people around you. Fantastic. All right. Okay. Well, look, uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a great session, um, as, as usual, with you guys. So uh, I'm not sure how your footy teams are going to go over the weekend. Uh, it's a pity that you can't go and, and watch them, uh, uh, but, but such, such, such is life. So thank you very much. Thank you to everybody who's been uh, watching us. Thank you to everybody who uh, watches us over the weekend and who listens. Uh, we, we get uh, enormous viewers and listens over the weekend. So thank you uh, very much to all of those. And uh, we will catch up with you in another week. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Scott. Cheers.